Welcome to the MedTech Talk podcast. In today's episode, a panel conversation from last month's MedTech Talk digital discussion series, our host, Jeff Pardo, with a panel of CEOs, explore exit strategies and lessons learned along the way. Let's listen in. I'm Jeff Pardo, and on this episode, we are focused on MedTech exits. Over the last three to five years, this has become an even more interesting topic within our sector. Whereas over the past, say, 20 years, we've been highly dependent on the large multinational acquirers, we've had a public market option resurface, and emerging companies have been able to be standalone companies, either via the traditional IPO process or a SPAC, which has become the topic du jour in many boardrooms over the course of the last year. Percolating behind all this, of course, was still a steady stream of M&A activity. And to help us guide us through the discussion today, I'm extremely fortunate to have three highly accomplished panelists, each of whom has had a unique set of experiences over over their careers in both public and private companies. And in particular, over the last few years, they've collectively experienced the gamut of how medtech companies can exit. So without further ado, I'm going to have each of them introduce themselves, and then we're going to dive right in. So going clockwise on my screen, maybe Leslie Trigg, start with you. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having us. Um, I'm Leslie Trigg. I'm the CEO of Outset Medical. I've spent most of my career in medical devices and started at Guidant and worked my way through a succession of startups, um, which led me now to um, to Outset, which I've run since the fall of 2014. Terrific. Clint. Yeah. So Clint Carnell, I started my career sales and marketing through Johnson Johnson, Chiron, Gambro Healthcare. I ran Bausch & Lomb Surgical. I went into a more VC back and took a couple of companies public, uh, primarily Sultan Medical. And my most recent was through a SPAC called uh, Beauty Health Company Skin with Hydrofacial as our flagship brand. So glad to be here. Thanks, Jeff. And uh, pleased to, to uh, spend time with you, Leslie and Bruce. Terrific. And Bruce. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, I'm a serial med tech entrepreneur and CEO. I've been uh, working at this now for almost 40 years. Started my career um, in Cordis long before it was part of J&J and ultimately found my way into the startup world. Um, raised probably on order of $500 million in private equity across numerous companies. Probably most relevant to today's discussion. Uh, most recently, I was the CEO of both Intact Vascular and Vesper Medical, a company we spun out of Intact, and uh, I sold both of those companies in the last 16 months to Philips. Awesome. Well, it's hard to imagine three people who've had a better uh, couple of years, so uh, congratulations on all the work with the with their companies and the progress you've made, and most importantly, the impact it's had on uh, on, on patients and, um, and people within our society. So it's exciting, uh, for sure. Uh, Maybe what I want to start with, though, is the first uh, topic, which is the current environment. And I'd like to ask Leslie, but I want everybody to kind of join in and we can keep this as informal as we can. Um, but but how, how do you deal with the volatility of the current environment? Is that something that affects you on a, a you know, as private company CEOs, you have the chance maybe to take a slightly longer view, although let's discuss that. But as a public company CEO, how how uh, how much does it occupy your attention, this current volatility, and how do you deal with it? Well, the second you started talking, I actually pulled up my phone. <laughs> oh, I'm like, well, that uh, my answer depends on, okay, so yeah, we're, we're up a little bit today. It doesn't bother me at all. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, that just happens today. Um, I... Um, you know, it's interesting, I think for me, and, and obviously everybody's different. I, I spent, you know, a lot of time kind of doing doing that um, right after we went public, probably for the first couple of months. And and then um, in a great way, I think, you know, life just takes over again and the biz, the business of, of one's life. And and so I, I I really don't look. I mean, I'm very aware that that med tech valuations have been um 
seeming to be reverting to a 10-year mean and um, very aware that that we're riding the wave down along with everybody else. So so we don't live under a rock. However, um, I was just saying to my husband last night, you know what would really, really stress me out um, is if the company were not performing, if we really had a problem in the business um, or a major, major setback operationally, that is, um, that's really what's going to keep me up at night. And, and it, and, and that was not an overnight transformation for me. I think in the beginning, I was much, much, much more attentive to, um, the stock price and dollar movements, 50 cent movements. And, and, and I think now I, I, I think in a, in a way that is, feels, um, appropriate for me, uh, I, I really am hundred percent focused on, on the operational execution of the business, because of course, that's the only thing we really do control. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, it must be difficult not only for yourself, but but keeping your employees focused. And, and so I'm curious, Clint, uh, how, how do you how do you do that? And how do you not let it affect the broader company or, or how difficult is it to manage that? Yeah, yeah I agree with uh, Leslie. Um, I think that's really thoughtful advice. You know, in the end, the, the operator, the CEO can only control how well the business is performing. You know, markets are rational over time. They're highly irrational uh, in certain periods. And I think, you know, my view is maybe we've seen the extremes of both of that the last 45 days, particularly for med tech and growth stories like like Leslie's and Skin. Um, it's challenging. I mean, I'm here in Long Beach where hydrofacials, we became a very high profile employer. And it was a little uncomfortable that when we were going up, all of a sudden, every waiter, every bartender, every restaurant owner, everybody I knew, my car driver was all investing in skin stock. And it scares the hell out of you. And then, you know, if it goes down, you worry about having a food tester to make sure somebody's not poisoning you. So <laughs> if, if you're a CEO that's focused like Leslie is on the business, hopefully I was uh, over my career, that's all you can control. You owe it to the analysts, to your investors to communicate your vision when things are going well, when things aren't going well, but, you know, markets have, um, the markets fluctuate, but it is, it is challenging. But I think if you're authentic with your constituents, your investors, your employees, your customers, those in your ecosystem as a CEO over the long term, you're rewarded. So that's my, my only advice. And Bruce, you've seen this as a, as a board member. I mean, how, how do you, how do you view the current environment and how do you counsel you know, CEOs and out there, in particularly neuronetics and dealing with the current environment? Yeah, well, first, let me say that uh, I feel blessed now. I, I, I can't say I ever thought I needed a food tester. So maybe I should have had one, Clint, but uh, <laughs> I don't think it's ever been quite that bad. Um, but uh, to your question, you know, I think particularly as a private company CEO, um, your job is to turn investor cash into milestones, uh, full stop. And that's what you really need to you know, stay focused on. And I think as long as you keep doing that, um, things will, will work out. I can't say that, again, as a private company CEO, um, I ever um, let market volatility impact what I was doing. Uh, you know, probably the one exception to that is that if you're in the middle of some kind of transaction, you know, volatility is not helpful. We sold Intact Vascular to Phillips uh, in the teeth of the pandemic, right? Just as it was taking hold in 2020. And I will tell you, that was not helpful, all the volatility that came with it. But um, again, you know, we got it done. Um, we, you just got to keep your head down and stay focused on your objectives as a business. And um, I, I think to your earlier question to Clint about how you um, you keep it from affecting your team, um, it comes down to the same thing. You know, you're constantly talking to people about the fact that, look, we just have to get our job done. We have to meet or beat our goals and turn the cash that people have trusted us with in, into milestones. And if you, you know, maintain that focus, I think you can ride, ride out just about anything. And I think what I've seen it done really well is just when you have that real strong company culture, you know, that's focused on patients and clinicians. And so, yes, there's going to be that, you know, public market drop back or whatever it is. But but that company culture seems to really play a role in making sure that the stock price is not the only thing on people's mind. Exactly. Yeah, that's very true. You know, there's a, there is a silver lining to this, and and I'm sure this applies to Clint as well. When you're growing uh, your your employee base rapidly, 
this is a huge opportunity for a lot of people too. Um, and that's kind of a cool thing. And, and so we, we have an ESPP program. And, and so now we look at, you know, an ESPP price kind of 15% below, um, sort of for what us, for what has been for us a historic low, um, is, is a great, great opportunity. And so, I will say that we have used it actually as a recruiting tool. Um, so it's a it's a little bit of a mixed bag, of course, depending on on how long you've been with the entity. But for those that are coming into the company, uh, maybe at a time when the the price is off of its highs, it can really provide obviously a lot of very attractive upside as well. Yeah, Jeff, maybe on that on that point, just to add to Leslie's point, it's really interesting to me is like if you you know I found it a couple out of my garage. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing one right now and I'm, I, I hired the CFO, I'm paying for it. I've hired my assistant, I'm paying for it. And they're like, really, you can afford me? Like there's uncertainty, but the will to follow. And then when you get VC back, you're like, that's awesome, but they really don't know what the company's worth. Um, if it's private equity, they're like, wow, that's pretty cool. We have an institutional fund in the public. Somehow that's like, wow, amazing. The truth is, there's risk at all of those levels, but it is interesting as you graduate up kind of the capital markets, how the rank and file employees typically see that as secure. I'm not sure that's the case, but it is an interesting phenomenon I found both internally and externally. I'm sure as, as soon as Leslie took outset public, she was famous, right? That just happens when you take it public, whereas that doesn't happen in the in the markets when you're doing private transactions. People go, what's that company? And yet it could have been far more successful. So it's a weird external, mm-hmm. internal validation that I found is interesting through the different types of capital structures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's uh, super interesting. And we, you know, we had a little discussion leading up to uh, this panel on sort of, you know, the success of the last few years and now is the window closed or not? And, and did, you know, how did we handle the last few years? I'm curious, Leslie, how, how you view this. Is this, is the window now closed for a while? I mean, we've had periods in our past when the window has been closed pretty tight for a long period, but did we manage it well enough that it's going to come back quicker this time? Or, or, or do you feel like, you know, it's going to be, you know, people better buckle down and get their financing strategy in order and just be focused on the, as a private company, I guess I'm talking, focused on executing and, and don't worry about going public. Well, I probably agree with the last part of what you said under all conditions, which is focused <laughs> on execution and making the business um, more valuable. That That's a winning strategy, no matter no matter what. I think that the answer to is it closed probably depends, again, on who you are and what your expectations are. I think that if you're someone whose expectation is of a couple billion dollar market cap um, and your pre-revenue or it kind of is a story story or you've got $20 million, there's no bright line I'm making up these numbers. Um, I think maybe that window is going to be, if not closed, it'll be very difficult to achieve. However, if um, I think for companies that have serious demonstration of commercial traction, and again, there's no magic number, but um, you're, you're well on your way, you know, perhaps to that 50, you're in the 50 to $100 million zone. You've got a really nice kind of gross margin profile. There's not a lot of hair on this. There's, reimbur- there's no reimbursement risk. You, know, you kind of tick all the boxes. Then I think, um, I, I do still think that there is going to be an open window with an appropriate um, level of expectation around valuation. I, I, I think that um, it, it is not permanently shut. I think it's perhaps going to be a little bit more selectively open is what I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, maybe a similar question to you, uh, Clint, how, how are you seeing it from your vantage point? Uh, do you think there's still a lot of appetite out there? I think there's a lot of money. I don't disagree with Leslie. I think there's a lot of um, money on the sidelines. You know, I was in a conversation today. I, I, we went public through a SPAC. We were going public the traditional way. Um, I think, you know, markets clear a lot faster and collapse a lot faster than we think. And it just feels to me like there's a lot of private equity. There's a lot of public money. And equities are the place that over the long term you do incredibly well. So I'm maybe a little bit more bullish you know, I was talking to somebody today that said, look, there's like, you know, 80 to $100 billion that in a year will have to clear the SPAC market if targets don't appear. And that money's not going back to the LP. So those people have a reason to put money back to work. I mean, the great thing about professional investors, no matter who they are, right, angels, VCs, private equity, or public markets is they're investors. So they have to put money to work. 
And it just to me seems like a lot of money still on the sidelines. So I may be more bullish about markets clearing. Um, and uh, and I think in the end, like we said in the earlier questioning, you just got to run a great business. Um, you have to stay attuned to what's happened in the market. I think two-thirds of a CEO's job is being external. And to me, that's that's incredibly important to um, to do. So I don't worry too much about is it open. I think you have to keep your mind, you know, keep keep an eye on what's your runway, how much cash do I have, do I have a good balance sheet. I, I prefer to look at it that way, and a function of how much money do you need to achieve victory, as opposed to what are the markets going to do? Because that's that's above my pay grade, and I think it's above most CEOs' pay grade, in my view. Yeah. And maybe Bruce, you know, one one thing we we saw, I think, with the rise of the uh, public market as an option for uh, med tech companies and the, some of the valuations that these companies were able to achieve is a lot of the big corporate players. I thought backed off a little bit, or at least uh, you know weren't quite as aggressive. Did you? Is that? Uh, would you agree with that statement? And and what do you think? You know, are we rationalizing such that you think that? Some of the big companies are now going to be more aggressive in going out and resurrecting the, uh, their M&A strategy? Uh, I think the answer to that is, is yes. I think that M&A um, will be strong. Uh, you know, Matt O'Brien at Piper published a report this week where he said that uh, med tech companies with a market cap of at least $5 billion have an aggregate $300 billion in cash on hand. Um, so, you know... I'm not saying all of that's going into M&A, but certainly some of it, I think, has to find its way uh, into M&A. And, and we see companies that have been relatively quiet of late um, making public statements that they're going to be more aggressive with M&A. Uh, Abbott comes to mind, for example, um, and, and there are others. So I think we're going to see large players uh, continue to be active. I think, um, given my, my experience most recently, I think there are uh, mid-tier players that are also uh, looking to be active, albeit at, at later stages. Uh, I think they're less likely to take risk. Um, so I think the short answer is, yeah, I do think the M&A market will continue to be fairly robust. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, one thing that I think is, and you've all been through it these last few years, is, you know, determining what path to take as a private company, you know, particularly given some of the options we're discussing. And I'm, I'm curious, the role of the CEO in in shepherding the different stakeholders through that and maybe Clint maybe we'll lead off uh, with you on this one how you know what was your role in kind of deciding you know which direction uh, you should take um, and and how did you go about it and I'd love for the others to comment on this as well sure great question I've been wrong more than I've been right on this one so that's the disclaimer um <laughs> Yeah, I think the CEO has to do, you know, ultimately the investors own the company, but the CEO has a large um, role in determining the ultimate outcome. And so I think it's important for a CEO to work with his board, uh, his or her board investors and try to form an opinion. And based upon the knowledge of the company you're running, uh, the ultimate exit for the investors and the external market to really be pretty definitive about the recommendation. Um, for instance, I came in under private equity and the investment thesis was let's take this $40 million revenue company, grow it to 90 million, sell it to the next private equity company. What happened was the company took off and we were still running a, you know, a 50 plus percent keg or top line company at a 25% EBITDA. I thought it was a much better public company exit. My investors uh, entertained that and then they went. And uh, we, we went through a private equity process, and then the world blew up in March of 2020. And so that forced us into a situation where we couldn't grow back into EBITDA because it had flattened us, and we were a much better public company. And then a SPAC came along because that was you know opportunistic at the time. Um, in the end, I think what we decided upon, here's the top line revenue, here's the EBITDA performance, here's the story we're telling. And in the end, I think uh, Beauty Health was a good example of just run a great company, and the right investors will be attracted to that type of asset. I think it's really, really um, uh, dangerous to react to flavor of the day based on what you see on CNBC. You know, value stocks are in, pivot from a growth, drives your employees nuts, it confuses your board. And, and I think it's important that you decide what is 
what what is your asset? Every one of these assets companies have a profile that if the CEO speaks truth to it, will find the right investors. And, and I think you can look at technology, med tech, consumer, EVs, rocket ships, just speak truth to what you think the business is really capable of. And I think you'll find the right investors because there's investors for every type of asset out there. Mm-hmm. Bruce, how did you, you, you're, you were, with, when you were running Intact, you were running a commercial company. I'm mm-hmm. sure you guys were thinking about the different paths that lay in front of you. You, you could, you know, stay private. You probably were in a position where you could have gone public. But right. how did you manage that decision-making yeah. process? Right. Well, the first point I would make is that as CEO, you, you really need to be preparing for all eventualities. And then maybe we'll come back to that because it's a little bit tangential. But uh, I think in terms of making the decision, uh, I think, first of all, it's important to understand that if you have more than one investor in your company, and uh, in particular, if they've been in for different periods of time and have different amounts of capital at work, um, they uh, are not likely to see uh, exits in the same way. Um, and I, we certainly had that situation at, at Intact. We had some investors that had been in for eight years, and we had you know another investor that had been in for probably less than a year. So um, you know they view near-term M&A and long-term IPO opportunities very, very differently. And as CEO, you really have to um, manage that process. And I completely agree with Clint that it is the CEO's job to lead the way for what is best for all shareholders, preferred and common alike. That is your one of your critical roles. And I think you have to go at it very pragmatically. You have to have a very clear-eyed view, for example, of how much money you're going to have to raise privately to get to a, an IPO down the road, how much money you're going to raise in that IPO. And then you, you got to do the math on what returns look like to investors um, post that IPO uh, or post whatever near-term you know, liquidity event acquisition you may be contemplating. And uh, you know, at Intact, we did that math. And uh, we concluded that um, it was in everybody's best interest to do the, the near-term um, acquisition and sell the company to Phillips. And uh, I think, really, ultimately, the analysis that we did on returns is what ruled the day. And Leslie, how did you see it? You had a more consolidated investor base, I think, at, at outset, right? Did you, how did you view this? Um, decision-making process was everybody on board to just to go public and make this as big as it could be. Were you thinking about, you know, stay, you know, just stay private for a much longer period? And how did you make the decisions? We had a number of investors, similar to Bruce's story. We did have um, an investor who at that point at 2020 had been in for about nine years. And then we had, we had just closed a Series E actually in mid February. It's probably two weeks before the pandemic. We just closed a Series E uh, with D1 Capital, and so they had only been in for you know a couple months by the time we started talking about this. So we we had both ends of the spectrum. Um, what what became clear to me, I mean, and, and Clint touched on like really really knowing your know what you are and know what you're not. Um, and and we knew that this is a absolutely a swing for the fences story. It's very capital intensive. It's very time intensive, but it also has the possibility, the real possibility of very, very outsized returns over a, you know, a, a 10 plus year period. And so it was very clear, although we had raised uh, a couple hundred million dollars privately, um, that journey was not over. And so knowing that we had at least a couple hundred million dollars more to go. And that was, again, just due to very specific facets of our business versus skin versus intact, you know, they're all different animals, but, but our animal included like a very um, unattractive gross margin profile where we should have actually just been raising cash and putting it in a checking account. And it would have been a higher return for people. So, um, so we knew we had, we knew we had to burn through a lot more cash to try to um, eventually kind of get to break even just on the product and then eventually on the company. So with all that said, thinking, well, we probably are, you know, four to $500 million. This is imprecise math away from a break-even profile. We're probably not going to find the best cost of capital any longer privately. This was our conclusion at the time. Might be different today. Um, And um, that was one. Two, 
it was around the springtime of 2020. And for the first time ever, I could really see two years of forward revenue. Um, I had 100% confidence in a a two-year forecast, maybe six or seven quarters at least. And the whole thing was splayed wide open uh, for lots of different reasons related to demand. And so that was, uh, that's always been my number one criteria. And it's probably selfish. I just, I didn't want to white knuckle it because I just, I don't need to live my life that way. I I was never going to do this unless, um, I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night. I I, I like sleeping through the night. You know, I Mm -hmm. I don't like generally being super stressed out. So that really gave me um, the confidence that, um, that the timing was right for this company we, need, we were going to need the cash, the cost of capital, because I was watching multiples start to rise after they tanked in March, April. Um, and I had an inkling that um, maybe by the time we got ready, it was the fall. I wasn't sure, but I had maybe a feeling that we could leverage scarcity value because I, I didn't, I had a feeling that maybe a lot of, not a lot of other higher quality med tech companies were going to go public in the fall, or at least in our zone, kind of the September window, and that maybe scarcity would also help us elevate um, to a price point that that felt good. Yeah, and yeah. you mentioned something. I mean, I know we're you know where we've been successful in the on the public market as investors. It's been companies that you know had more predictability, and where we've stumbled, it's those companies that you know they they really hadn't quite figured out the you know the the ramp yet. Um, and I'm curious. I mean, I, I imagine that's one aspect. What are some of the other things that make for a robust? a robust IPO or a company that should be where you'd encourage that CEO to, yeah, this you're ready to go public. Uh, I'm happy. I right before this, I was, I was on two back-to-back calls, totally different. And there were pitches. Um, one is a company of fascinating technology. I don't want to disclose who it is, but they were making the case that their pitch deck, they wanted to raise a hundred million dollars because they should be worth billions a couple of years from now. And, and my advice to them, and it was pretty rough, was how much money do you need to get that really commercially viable, do proof of concept? And I said, I, I think you need to overcome the TAM. Does it exist? Um, why is it a better mouse trap? And what are the economics? It's in a cash pay business. I said, I think you should focus on raising 10 to 15 million. Um, very next call, I'm on a board of a company uh, called Embrace, which is a fascinating technology. It's behind the teeth braces. Uh, we've raised 175 million, but Align Technology, who's everybody, everybody's aware of, has done an amazing job creating a, an incredible company. Um, you know, Embrace is clearly a company that I think should be positioned as a public company. And so, interestingly, we have fantastic early investors. Um, you know, Vivo, Venbio, Nova Nordisk uh, that have supported the company. And then we brought in a lot of crossover investors. And so, you know, part of the board conversation is what is this company to be? And I think it probably sounds a lot more like Outset. We've raised money, but it's an enormous opportunity. We have an amazing technology and the company is going to need more capital. So I don't think we want to sit around waiting for a strategic to buy. The company is going to have to keep moving forward. And and the truth is the revenue of those two companies is not that different, but their objectives and the investors they'll attract are so far apart. But the pitch decks maybe a year ago, it'll look very similar. So Mm -hmm. I think it's really, really important that you really ask yourself the hard truth about where are you in commercial adoption, potential to grow, what you need the use of funds for. Um, Because, you know, the wins are what's the return on investment for your investors, not what's the overall market cap. You know, it's a function of how much money in, how much money out over what time horizon. Sometimes I think we lose we lose focus on that. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I had. Um, oh, sorry to interrupt. I had just just jotted down two things um, as Clint was starting, and I wrote, "What is the size of your TAM?" That's the first thing you hit on. Um, and, and we were just asked about that over and over and over again. That was a little bit of a surprise to me for perhaps naively. I just never thought I, of all the things about outside. I didn't think that people were going to be the most focused on that. We are fortunate to, to be in one of the largest sectors of healthcare with, I think there's roughly 85 or 90 million dialysis treatments a year. So it is a large jam, but I've watched other companies go public where they, they struggle a bit with that. Um, and then I put strong investors, I, I think, uh, and that, that this embrace, which I just, um, I just, 
jot it down because I, I, I probably should try to actually use that product in the future. But um, I think strong, strong investors, particularly crossover investors who have the capacity and the tenacity to stay with you in the public markets, creating a lot of stability for the stock, not just through the six month um, hold period, but but uh, ideally further beyond. I, I think th- those are the first two things that I jotted down. And I'd say third, again, the predictability um, not only of your your revenue stream, but now I would say of your supply chain. And I, that's one thing, wasn't as big of a deal when we went public, but if I was going public today, I'd be looking at my supply chain team and going, can, can they navigate this? If it's med tech, if it's component heavy, if you've got, we have like 3000 components in Tableau. So in 400 suppliers all over the world, then it's, a, it's very complex. Maybe that's not a big deal if you've got five components in your thing or you're a digital health company or something like that. But for conventional med tech, I'd sort of be thinking about stability of the top line, stability of your your bottom line, if you will. Yeah. How about the need for a product pipeline? And and I wonder if this played into your thinking at all, Bruce, and with um, Intact or, or Vesper. I mean, these were products. They fit nicely into the portfolios of bigger right. companies. But, right. but we have seen single, I mean, Inspire at Exonix, when we took that public, that was a, they ended up buying another company, but that was really a single product. How much, how important is that, do you think, in the equation? Yeah, I mean, Leslie said something earlier that really rang true for me, and that is uh, know what you are and know what you are not um, as you contemplate, you know, whether or not you might uh, do an IPO. And I, I think that a product pipeline plays a, a very important role in long-term IPO success. Um, I mean, you can get a variety of things public and, uh, and, and maybe see some shorter-term success, but I think that um, if you want to be successful over the long haul as a public company, um, you need a product pipeline. Now, you can buy some of that, that's true, but that all has to be part of the plan, right? The company has to be capitalized to allow you to do that kind of thing. You have to know, like, you know what the targets are and all the rest. So, um, I mean, I, one good example, I think, of a company that's done this well is Shockwave uh, in the space where I live, uh, where they have a technology that has numerous applications. And uh, if you look at what's driven the valuation of that company over time here since it's been public, a big part of it is, uh, is their coronary business. Um, so they've done a really good job at bringing that on since they took that company uh, out. So had they not had that, I don't think the story would be as, as you know, happy as it is. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think it is very important to, you know, to be tooled up for long-term success if you're actually going to go down the IPO road. How do you do that, Clint? Um, I think, you know, also it's buyer build. Right. I mean, public markets, if you have a strategy, you know, I think you can decide, are you a product company? Are you a company? Are you a category creator? And, um, you know, you can be in either or. I think you get in trouble when you try to be a tweener and you don't signal the markets what you want. Because I think, you know, what I've become, you know, probably uh, much more um, sensitive to is investor profiles and really ensuring that you speak. You know, earlier in my career, I tried to raise money by saying what I thought the investor wanted to hear. Now I'm, I try to be much more clear on our message. And I found that the investors that agree with your thesis and gain trust in the management team will invest in you. And then those that don't, it doesn't matter how good the story is. You're just not in their investment thesis. So I pay a lot more attention now to what is your investment committee interested in? What's your previous investments? What do you see as a win? Uh, because sometimes it's a little like speed dating. You might as well just get the no out of the way if you're not talking yeah. the same language. And so I, I think Bruce is exactly right. What he did is amazing, right? Two sales to Phillips in COVID, but it sounds like it was maniacally focused on just building really, really great products. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he had a great relationship and they probably bet on he and his team. Um, I've just gone through a SPAC process where we had been growing organically, a 50% kegger over five years. Um, my sponsor is a builder and is, is known for deal making. And so that was the investment thesis going to the market. And then as we went to market, we had to answer those questions. So I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, but I do think it's super important that the CEO, the board agree on that. And then that they align investors that have the same vision. And as long as you execute, everybody stays along for the ride. The famous one, right, is Bezos saying, sometimes I'm going to make money, sometimes I'm not going to. Amazon hasn't any problem making money and they're worth a ton. 
now, but he was really firm early on. Musk was early on. I mean, we forget he was almost bankrupt in 18. There's been a lot of investors that have done well. So I'm not a fan of meme stocks and flavor of the day, but I do think purposeful investment thesis uh, by the CEO will attract the, the, the right investor for your asset. And then you just have to execute. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you can never be overly dogmatic or rigid in in your thinking. I mean, you know, I've, in some of our companies that went public, there was this notion that well, you really shouldn't go out and start looking for companies to buy because, in a way, you're you know, you're you're maybe giving people the message that uh, your original TAM was not big enough that you need to acquire something else. And Leslie, I wonder how you 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 view that, or do, or or should it be part of, you know, a, a an emerging public company that, that you should start thinking about that next act, and maybe that next act doesn't involve acquiring something. Well, I'm not speaking specifically, of course, uh, but um, generally or theoretically, I think that's probably a, a great example of conventional thinking um, that's to me gone out the window. I think because sort of all of our thinking about today's world in general is is out the window. I thought the Axonics move was really interesting. Mm-hmm. It caught my attention because it was unusual for a newly public company, newly public company CEO, to make that move. But um, without knowing anything about what they acquired, I, I loved it. It was bold and um, and it was a sort of foot forward. So generally speaking, um, I think like any other strategic move, if it has an, uh, an obviously compelling rationale, if it doesn't involve 90% of your market cap or 92, 95% of your cash, um, I, I, I think the, the public markets, it's an advantage. I mean, I think it, it, it provides one with that flexibility um, to think a bit bigger. And generally, I would say as a relatively newly public company, we we are already thinking bigger. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe shifting gears a little bit in, to the to the SPAC process. And, and, and Clint, I'll ask you to speak to this uh, directly, but I know Leslie also has uh, some insight into SPACs. But, but who should who should consider a SPAC? What makes for a good, you know, a good SPAC candidate, do you think? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think um, I've been watching SPACs for years. They come in and out of flavor. We certainly were, were, we were hot when we were a SPAC and then we were not. And now I think they're really being, um, you know, criticized. I think who's a good candidate? Um, You really need to have a good business, right? I mean, I think, um, you know, when you're a a company that's acquired by a SPAC, you're public, you have the same challenges Leslie has. So you have to have a, we set guidance, we beat, we raise, we say what we do. We're not going to surprise you. We communicate with investors. We pick up analysts. You know, we're capable of being a, a public company. Uh, and so I don't think there's any difference in the criteria for a successful IPO versus a successful SPAC. The advantage is if you are a SPAC, um, say you're a private equity holder, I mean, a company that's a target of a SPAC, is many times um, you do a couple of things. One is you take uncertainty of pricing off the table. Um, and that's no small feat. I mean, I've been parts of IPO teams where you're sitting there white knuckled and the bankers are telling you it's going to go and you have to, Jeff, you know, it's going to go for this and it doesn't or it does. And, you know, it's it's like sitting at the, the roulette table. Um, so when you are the target of a SPAC, you negotiate the price up front. It can take liquidity off the table. Uh, for investors. So it can reset expectations and then it brings you into the public market. And if you have a successful business, uh, it can be a shorter, less onerous way into the public market with more certainty. Um, The challenges are, you know, uh, is a SPAC just a sponsor that's going to desert you? There's redemption rights. Um, there's the uncertainty being thrown in the bucket of SPACs and, and, and tainted on CNBC. And, uh, and what are the sponsor economics and what's the board composition? Because there's less scrutiny going into a de-SPACing process. And I think that's where some of the governance coming from the SEC is focused on. Um, because in the end, you're going to be a public company and you better be ready to be a public company. So on the benefits, liquidity and certainty. Uh, on the negative side, there can it can be a little bit hairier as you look to uh, to despack and become public if you haven't run your company the way that have, would have withstood scrutiny on an original IPO. 
That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's interesting. I was having this debate with someone the other day, and and they they had a different view. Which I'm curious, Leslie, to get your take on this. And they their view was, you know, it used to be that IPOs were thought of as more of a financing event. People weren't expecting to get you know liquid six months after an IPO, and then suddenly with sort of the rise, at least to this latest class, you did see that happen in certain cases. Um, and yet, in many cases, you know, these companies are really still developing and there should be some sort of financing vehicle which gives these companies the runway and a SPAC can can be that. Um, and so maybe there is that class of companies that that isn't, you know, sort of right down the fairway as far as an IPO would go, but would make a good SPAC candidate because you can raise a lot of money and you do have you know, maybe some extra runway. I'm curious if that resonates or, or how do you, do you see more like Clint that you, it better be something that's also could, you know, ready to be a truly a public company measured on a quarterly. Absolutely agree with Clint. I, you know, look, this, the SPAC is um, just the delivery vehicle, right. Um, but you still arrive at the same destination. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I, I, I would never, ever, ever recommend a SPAC, um, for anybody who wasn't truly ready and a candidate for a conventional IPO. If you're ready for a conventional IPO, why would you do a SPAC? I think Clint's articulated some really good um, reasons why. And, and I think pricing certainty is would be at the top of my list as well. And we, we looked at that option. Um, I think that might be something pricing certainty, maybe let's say for a startup that has a really elevated private valuation. Um, that could be, for example, maybe a good candidate for a SPAC because you might be wondering, uh, particularly now as markets obviously get a little choppier, if you're already at, I, I'm making numbers up a billion, 1.5 privately, you will you should be entering with less certainty that you can jump over that. However, if it's a SPAC vehicle, particularly one that maybe some of your investors have ties to, they've gotten to watch the company over time, you, you might be able to actually negotiate um, a more uh, a better premium than and and avoid getting surprised. And Bruce, at, at Intact, I don't think you really considered a, a, a SPAC. So, and why why was that? Did did what, what went into that? Yeah, you know, I don't know whether we were right or wrong, but I think the general view of SPACs um, by my board at Intact was that it, it was really a uh, kind of a a second rate way to uh, take the company public and that if uh, we were going to take it public, well, then, you know, we should just uh, we should just do it right. Uh, do it the old fashioned way, so to speak. So it's just not something that, you know, our investors, our board really viewed as a um, as a viable strategy. It was never honestly, we never discussed it in any uh, in any detail. And I think that was, on the economics, Jeff, we, we talked about this the other day, you know, say you're taking the company public and you you priced it 500 million, you sold 20% of the company, you may end up with 100 million on the balance sheet, you pay banker fees. So now let's say you have, you know, 85 million, you know, if your investors have the right appetite, they might say, hey, 500 million is fine. Uh, we'll do X and then we'll raise proceeds and put 250 million on the balance sheet for M&A or, or expansion. So, I think um, Leslie's right. I think these things are just all vehicles. You know, do you want a potato chip to get the salsa there? Or do you want a, a tortilla <laughs> to get the salsa there? Like in the end, you, you need to make sure as a CEO that you're properly financed to achieve your objectives. So I don't find them as independent factors. I find them as highly connected. Yeah. And do you do you think it's going to be durable, Clint? The role of the SPAC going forward, and you know, have there, what have been the key lessons learned? Do you think? I mean, you guys have been very successful yeah. going down that path. What, what, how durable is this? Yeah, I'll say this, and it's no no uh, offense intended intended to our our sponsors. When we did our SPAC, it was fall of twenty twenty, and there was nobody really giving good advice out there. But you know, they're you're getting a 5% fee or a 2% fee or whatever it is. So everybody's acting like they know what they're doing. I have found that all the advisors have become much more knowledgeable because now we have more data points. Um, but there really wasn't really good guidance out there. Um, some things that I think we did right in retrospect is one is we had been flattened by COVID as a, as a company that was focused on facial treatments. So we went from, you know, roughly 25 million a month in revenue in March of 2020 to, to minus one in April. I've never sold minus $1 million in revenue, but we managed to. 
That's quite <laughs> shocking. Um, and then we started to see some glimmers of hope as Asia opened up and Europe opened up. And so by the fall, um, we had a business that we told the market would do 112 at the end of the year. Um, that was cut more than in half. Um, we finished at 119. But one of the things is people were saying, should you give a five-year rosy performa like you can in a SPAC? And we chose to do a one-year, um, which I think really benefited us as we brought investors in and we we did beat and raise all the four quarters that I ran it. That was really super helpful. Uh, secondly, as we started working to get analyst coverage early, so I think the company now has 10 analysts and we had eight People told us there's no way in hell you get more than three, but we actually found telling the analysts a story often being accessible, being clear about it was important. And then we were really, really attentive to the investors and took every call. So the pipe investors helped us with the public investors, helped us with our convertible investors. And, you know, within six months of going public, we've raised almost a billion. We had a stock that had increased. We had analyst coverage that was very favorable. So I'd say do, you know, beat and raise, get analyst coverage explained early and often, get the right investors. And um, and I think I don't think there's any magic to it. I think we overthink the different market structures. But being public is just like being private. You just have more bosses, but they're more diluted. I think we we over overthink that a little bit. Yeah. And, and we're getting kind of, kind of into another area where, I, which I think I want to explore, and really all the different paths, which are you know sort of tips and tricks and things to avoid. And I'm I'm curious, you know, as you think about it, Leslie, I'm more the IPO side, but also weigh in on the SPACs. What are, if you're advising, you know, companies on things that went really well for you and things that you would, you know, you mistakes you'd avoid, and uh, in whatever the exit path, but IPO, for example. Well, do you mind if I make a comment about private investing? Well, please. Yeah, yeah. Private <laughs> fundraising. Sorry, not investing. I've never been an investor. Um, yeah, because I, I think I, I probably have made, I've certainly, I've, I was in the private world longer than I've been in the public world, so I've just made more mistakes there. Um, one mistake I think that that Clint touched on is trying to make the investor something they're not. And, and so said a different way, he he, he framed it um, more positively, which is really do your homework on the investor profile, I think is what you said, Clint, and really understanding um, who they are and who they're not. I tended to take that very personally. Um, and then I applied the brute force method. So if somebody you know told me no, it's like, oh, but clearly you don't understand. So I gave one investor in particular who's a name everyone would know. And this individual has turned me down every t- four times. But um, but I, I, I called this person like my, it's like my white whale. Like I've got to get this investor. And you know what? At the end of the day, we just didn't fit this investor. Like, so I wasted an enormous amount of like psychic energy, number one, um, and a ton of time because we just really didn't fit. And that's because I was not listening and I was getting competitive. Um, so I think it's sort of managing your own psychology, managing the reject, framing the rejection as, um, sometimes it is hundred percent about you. And I have done plenty of times where I just didn't tell the story very well. So that's on me, but then, but there are probably more times where it's just, um, you know, square peg round hole kind of thing. And you, you got to let it go. So I probably wasted too much time trying to convince people um, that actually they really do want to be an outset and it was never going to happen. So a lot of time wasted, move on, like be the goalie, the shot, go, go, move on. That was one. Um, I think the other thing, perhaps mistake, um, maybe that I, I've probably made and, and seen others make a lot is not telling a clear, compelling story. This is one thing you would think this would be like the only class we would get in business school or undergrad, or I didn't take, I didn't have any of these classes in business school, but the the clarity of communication, um, you you just talked about Clint, you know, running through a couple of decks. And if I saw five, probably four and a half are terrible. It's too much detail. It's too much data. It's what is the point? So what, who cares? Why does it matter? And, and so I think that we, we had a bit of a complicated story in the beginning of outset. It was too convoluted. There was too much going on. So I, I made some of those communication errors, I think earlier in the private, by the time we got to the public in the IPO, um, 
you know, uh, in a very short, gosh, only in five years it took to finally simplify the message. Uh, but that that was the great forcing function where you really do have sort of a minute. What do we do? Um, the, the, it's a first of its kind technology to reduce the cost and complexity of dialysis. You know, it, it, you need to get it down to one sentence. And it, and it took me personally way too long to figure that out and, and to figure out how to do it. So I would say just really spend time um, in, from an outsider's point of view, simplify, simplify, simplify. Yeah. So much sense. And Bruce, and Bruce how about you? I mean, uh, you know, uh, going down sort of the private company M&A, what's worked and, yeah. and, and what, what hasn't worked? How would you advise? Yeah. Well, first of all, Leslie, congratulations. You only have one white whale. I have, I have a whole collection. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, a few things. Um, one is is just sort of a, a follow on to what Leslie just said, and that is that I think a great story is not enough. Um, you need a great story that is well told, and you really cannot underestimate how important it is to deliver your story, as she just pointed out, in a very concise and compelling way. And um, you know, what people ask me, you know, how they should be presenting, you know, what their presentation style should be, et cetera. I said, you know, you ought to sound like Robert Oppenheimer talking about the Manhattan Project, right? You need to be really clear. You need to have a full grasp of what you're talking about. And, you know, you need to deliver the message with great confidence. So that's not so much, uh, you know, a, a mistake per se, but, um, I think that it's critically important to financing success. Um, but um, on to like do's and don'ts. I think if you're a, a private company med tech CEO, first of all, it's a big mistake to just assume that you're going to go down one of these paths. That you, you know, you're only assuming you're going to get bought or you're only assuming you're going to go public. Um, you have to be prepared for kind of all eventualities and you have to be parallel processing all the time to make sure you are ready. For example, um, at Intact, I always felt like the likely path would be that we would be acquired more likely than public. But I also knew that the day might come where going public would be the most uh, you know, attractive option. So, you know, we made sure that we were being audited by a big four firm. Um, I, um, I always, and, and this is a practice I've implemented in, in every company I've led, uh, we, we have a data room active from the very beginning, and it is the management team's practice and responsibility to make sure that data room is up to date all the time, right? Um, I spent a fair bit of my time talking to analysts and bankers and strategics to make sure that they were all updated on our progress and our story as it evolved, because you can't, you know, if, if you suddenly discover that you need, for example, analysts to be excited about you, you it's really hard to do that overnight. You know, you, you it, it has to be something that, um, that you've, you've cultivated uh, over time. Um, so I think you just need to be thoughtful about, uh, you know, where you might end up. And make sure that uh, you're preparing for all those eventualities long way. I think something else you, you've done, Bruce, is you engage uh, counsel during the M and A process. That's not necessarily the, the corporate counsel, right? Right. Yeah. Very, very important. I think if you think that um, you're going to get a deal done with, particularly with a large acquirer which has, you know, a huge team of people. I'll tell you that, uh, you know, at, at Vesper, for example, we had uh, uh, 31 employees, and I think there were 80 people on the Phillips uh, M&A team. Um, so <laughs> I think I got that number right. Um, but, uh, you know, these companies that, that come along and buy small med tech companies are, are enormous and well-resourced, and they have a lot of expertise. So, uh, don't think you're going to get this done uh, without a, a lot of very sophisticated professional help on your side. You know, in my opinion, you need uh, an M&A attorney that's done a few hundred of these deals and preferably somebody that's been across the table from whomever it is you know, you're being acquired by a dozen or so times. Right. So that attorney knows their 
you know, their, their buttons, their game. Um, you also need uh, sophisticated banking help. I think that's also critical. It's easy to say, wow, we're going to pay these bankers a lot of money. Are they really worth it? In my view, the answer to that is almost always yes, if you pick the right bank, because they will help you navigate what will undoubtedly be choppy waters, you know, uh, during the deal making process. Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe to, to wrap this up, I mean, a question I'd like to ask each of you, because we, we find ourselves as usual, and it seems like there's never an uninteresting time in our MedTech universe. And as we sit here, you know, we're hopefully last gasps of COVID, maybe, maybe not, uh, rising interest rates, inflation, supply chain issues, but still tons of opportunity, tons of innovation and market, you know, untapped markets. Maybe starting with you, Leslie, how, what's your view? How optimistic are you in, in what lies ahead and versus some of the risks that uh, we can see on the horizon? Well, I am generally always optimistic, so I don't know that this is a differentiated answer. Um, <laughs> I can say that I, yeah, I do. This is just instinctive and it's, it's it, well, is it instinctive or is it wishful thinking? I don't know. It's probably wishful thinking that it feels different to me. It feels like we are emerging um, in terms of the, I'll say sort of the, the hospital environment, the commercial environment into which we're selling. On the supply chain side, I would say, again, for, for us um, in a hardware and a software business, but um, not, not, uh, not there yet. I, I think we, there's a long, long way to go. And I, when we talk about it, I think it's um, more of a middle of 2023 type of forecast where it feels like we're in a, or approaching a semi-normalized environment. Um, now, I also will say that, I, and this is probably wishful thinking, that I think maybe whether it's 23, 24, I think a lot of our components are going to suddenly dramatically drop in price because I just I just think there's a lot of hoarding. There's a lot of panic buying. I, so I think we're going to have a, a surplus um, that'll help us hopefully help our, our margin in, in future years. But, but for this year, um, our supply chain team is kind of the center of the universe at outset still. Yeah. And how about you, Clint? You're you're very close to the consumer and uh, and probably experiencing real time kind of you know how they're thinking about how optimistic they are about uh, this year and uh, the short term. How are you viewing things? Yeah, maybe I'll take a little a little different tact on this one for maybe a little controversy. But you know, I, I led Bal Shalom after the 01, you know terrorist attacks, caught in a merger of equals in 08. And with Thermage and Fraxel for Solta, and then, you know, this latest COVID and however long it lasts, I always tell my teams, you cannot pay attention to external factors. You need to be aware of them. Um, but business is still about if you sell something for a dollar and it costs you 30 cents to make your gross margin, 70 percent, and you need to run it to make at least 10 to 15 cents. And if you can't just put it in like mutual funds. Right. Get out of business and put it in mutual funds because uh, in the end, business is about profit. So I, I, I tend to view this that markets clear. There's always new external challenges. And so, you know, if you're skiing through the trees, look for the path, not the tree. So inflation is a real issue. Supply chain is a real issue. You know, external threats around geopolitical destabilization, maybe the closing of the Chinese market. You know, if you turn on the news, you just want to go into a corner and curl up and cry for the next however long. Uh, but I think as business leaders, and I think actually during COVID, if you look at the confidence studies, politicians let us down, media let us down, business leaders were actually uh, uh, seen as, um, you know, well-respected and trustworthy by their employees. And those challenges will happen to every business. I mean, I'm involved in probably a half dozen businesses right now. And the one that starts out with because of COVID, I just, I tell them, skip those 10 slides Let's go next. Yeah. Because of inflation, skip those slides. Like, there's always going to be changes. So I, I know I shouldn't sound like a, a terrible capitalist at this point, but you know, Green Bay Packers are a pretty good football team. I could, I couldn't even walk outside in that stadium. I live in California, but uh, Aaron Rodgers managed to throw the football. So I, I tend to look at the external factors more that way. Uh, but they are real. You know, they are real, and people don't seem to want to help businesses a lot these days. So it's not that it's not real, but you're going to be paid for being better than your peers. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the way I tend to look at it is we will be better. In fact, I'll tell you one last thing is going public. My team started whining about going public. All teams do because that's what you do. 
And my CFO, Leanne Wu, and I looked at each other and said, are we a great executive team? She said, yeah. I said, then we will make going public our competitive advantage. That's great. Right? It changed the whole team's perspective on it. So anyway, it's yeah. a little bit of a uh, soapbox, but that's the way I, I tend to try to lead the teams. That's great. And how about you, Bruce? How are you looking at uh, the challenges and the opportunities um, you know, I, I think that uh, I'll just go back to what I had said earlier. You know, I, I think that if you are solving a really important problem um, and uh, you're creating real value for patients, I think that, uh, you know, you'll ultimately succeed no matter what's going on around you. Right. If you stay focused on executing and, and delivering on your promises, I think that ultimately uh, good things happen. You just have to make sure that you really are solving important problems. That is a mistake I see some entrepreneurs make. Um, but I, I think if, if you've got good technology, you're solving important problems that are large, clinically meaningful, um, and you execute, um, it's all good. Yeah. Well, good. Well, that's a great way to uh, end this session. Thanks so much. I mean, one thing that uh, I had the pleasure of, of backing uh, Bruce and uh, and so know firsthand the passion that uh, he he brought to to Vesper and Intact and and uh, and it's obvious with both uh, you, Leslie and Clint. Uh, that's one of the things that we really look for in our entrepreneurs is just the passion, the commitment to uh, to the people that they're serving, and it's um, it's clear that. Uh, that's a big part of why you guys are so successful. So I can't thank you all enough for, for taking the time. And, uh, and I'm sure uh, people will get a lot out of this. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Good to see you guys. Liked this conversation? This is just a glimpse of what you can expect from the MedTech MVP presenters and panelists. Join us June 14th to 15th in Minneapolis as we unite leading innovators, investors, and executives in the medtech space. Save an additional 10% with the code PODCAST2. For more information, visit medtechconference.com.